0: Welcome back to Hemp Barons, Jeremy Kletke and Christian Gray. It's wonderful to have you back.
1: Thanks, Joy. Glad to be here.
0: So great to have you. As a reminder, folks, and please do check out uh, our last episode with Jeremy and Christian. It was a fantastic one where we really got into the the vision and dream and promise of hemp from an environmental and even uh, spiritual perspective. And that was episode 94 on Hemp Barons. And today we welcome back Jeremy Kletke, CEO and president of Davis Farms, and Christian Gray, partner at Agros Ventures. And of course, that's the tip of the iceberg about what both of these Uh, dynamo advocates and real pioneers uh, in the hemp industry do for these emerging industries and this versatile, valuable crop. Today, gentlemen, we're talking about genetics, uh, a particular area of skill, expertise, and of course, what you do in commerce and and so much of how you educate and contribute um, to farmers and to successful cultivation of this crop. Um, if we could, let's start out just with sort of the standard agricultural seed processes and methods, a, a lesson, if you will, for the listeners on what seems like, gee, it must be such a simple thing. You, t- you buy a seed and you stick it in the ground. Not so simple, quite complex, whether it's a strawberry or a tomato or whether it's a hemp. So um, Christian, would you start us off here and then we'll hear from Jeremy?
1: Absolutely, yeah, and we'll we'll keep it uh, very conversational. I, I don't everything I know uh, about this process. Jeremy probably has in his pinky, right? So I'm actually oh, yeah. new, new, new to the conversation. Thanks, Christian. And as I as I like to, you know, remind folks, I'm not a farmer. I'm not a horticulturist. The last time I grew something. Uh, intent was uh, Future Farmers of America in high school. So that was about 1986. So the re-emergence of hemp as a a commercial crop in the United States uh, post-farm bill really uh, is an emerging market. Genetics are obviously key to the success of the crop. And there are a bunch of standards, processes, and regulations, and organizations. I like to call it alphabet soup. We can talk about that in a few minutes that apply to all different types of of seeds and inputs for other crops. So there are regulations and requirements around labeling, around uh, seed uh, sales registration, seed propagation, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So that's that's just the tip of the iceberg, and we'll we'll get into more of it. Jeremy, you want to jump in?
2: Sure, absolutely. I mean, just to to cap on what Christian is saying right there, um, we have uh, a situation where we have, like you said, seed, seed licensing requirements for all the seed sellers. We have seed labeling requirements for all the seed sellers, and we have seed certification requirements for all the seed sellers. And these are the things I think all the farmers should be pretty in tune with. Uh, the primary one being right now in the States is an, an agricultural seed label. When you talk, uh, Joy, about outside of hemp industry and standard agricultural practices, there is certainly a model of you know the type of labeling that we should see. And up to now, it really hasn't been as prevalent in the hemp industry as it needs to be. Fortunately... I think the departments of ag are starting to force the seed providers to toe the line, but absolutely, you know, these guys—if if they look at a legal seed label—a legal seed label has pretty much all the stuff except for the the certifying body, you know, the certification body if they're EOSCA or OECD, which we can talk about in a minute. Um, so the, the label is a is a good thing for a farmer to know about.
1: And just to kind of direct farmers toward resources, that's a big part of, I think, our conversation today is is helping educate folks uh, on things that are standard in other other, uh, crops and commodities. Um, So if folks want to go up to the U.S. Department of Agriculture website, uh, search seed labeling requirements or rules and regulations, there's a lot of very good information about what should be on a label and why it's there. Uh, there's also a PDF provided by the Natural Resources uh, Conservation Service and Plant Materials Program. And there's a simplified guide. It's a couple pages long that will walk you through uh, things like the variety and cultivar release name, lot number, origin, net weight, percent of pure seed, uh, percent of inert matter. So these are not seeds that are going to grow. Foreign seed, yeah. Foreign seed, weed mm-hmm. seed, uh, re- a name of restricted noxious seed. And all these things are very standard and normal in in agriculture and uh, hemp will get there too.
0: And I wanted to quickly mention that, of course, like most things in these wonderful United States of America, we've got the federal regulations and state regulations. So states also have their own labeling requirements and and sub-regulations as well. So just uh, uh, throwing that out there. And so from whatever state you're in or whatever state you're interested in, uh, just as you would search USDA and those great search terms and get the treasure trove of an education, which is fantastic, do the same thing with your state. Uh, department of ag as well in those same uh, search terms.
2: You bet, Joy. This is all about standardization, which is what we're looking for right now. And, and you, you just bring up we're all grinning here because we know as hemp people that, yeah, okay, the outside of our hemp industry, the ag seed is, is all standardized, right? So these labels are all they need. Then you step into the hemp industry and every state ag department has their own seed acquisition protocols, their own requirements. So it is really important that everybody knows to contact their State Department of Ag, no matter what you know, they're looking at for the, the federal requirements.
1: Yeah, a couple, a couple things to watch out for. And I know uh, Jeremy and I have, have both seen this up, up close and personal um, and just kind of a, a reality check. Right. It's an emerging market. It's a reemergence of a crop that was quite successful in, in uh, prior days. And everybody's trying to do their best, right? The departments of ag are trying to do their best, IOSCA, other certifying bodies. You've got the crop improvement agencies at a state level, and no one has it all figured out. You know, many of the uh, certified uh, versions of uh, industrialized hemp are going to be fiber and grain varieties. You're not going to see as many certified CBD producing, let alone CBG or CBN or whatever the hot new compound is that everybody's chasing. And when you do find a state, Crop Improvement Agency has actually certified a cultivar and, and given it the uh, the very uh, important blue label, right? That doesn't necessarily mean that that variety won't uh, potentially violate regulatory uh, requirements and could potentially go hot or exceed the maximum THC levels. So while all these organizations and certification programs and approved cultivars lists are helping to guide the farmers towards good decisions, don't necessarily believe that that's going to keep you out of harm's way, right? So you may have to do a little additional digging or get advice or feedback from your genetics folks or crop consultants in addition to those lists. That's huge, Christian.
0: And let's go back for a moment as we throw around that term, that acronym, AOSCA, the Association of Official Seed Certifying Agencies. And and if one of you fine gents will explain uh, to our listeners what that is. And also, um, I wanted to mention, you know, just a a ground level sort of lesson here is why is it that we have mostly grain and fiber varieties certified at the the international level? Certainly the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperative Development as well has been certifying them. And that's because it takes some years to really make a unique, distinct and stable uh, genetics. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes anywhere from, and and Jeremy will please correct me if I'm misspeaking at all here, uh, seven to 10 years, if not longer, um, for that to accomplish from from my understanding. And and Jeremy will fine tune and and polish that up. and so these extract varieties of hemp, again, this, this idea of extracting non-intoxicating cannabinoids from the hemp plant sort of hit all of us like a ton of bricks. For me, around 2014, discussions had been happening around 2011. Um, and so we're, we're in that time period now of, of creating and maintaining in a breeding program genetics so that we can arrive at these unique, distinct, stable um, um, seeds that will allow for extract varieties to to meet those standard requirements to really be a pedigreed certified seed hit hit us jeremy
2: okay well i guess you know i guess again capping on what christian said a minute ago i'll just say that i'm really happy that he brought up that um standard seed labeling and oftentimes uh, any kind of blue tag requirements which would be AOSCA or oecd they they don't check all the boxes for what a farmer needs to look at for hemp seed Um, They're not going to address the the feminization rates, which when we're talking about primarily feminized seed for resin producing or for extract producing plants, um, and they're certainly not going to address total THC. So those, until we get those incorporated, and I I would love to see those incorporated into those certifying agencies. I think that that would be the responsible thing to do, but it's a new layer. It's an absolutely new layer for these guys, so I don't expect them to figure it out in in a split second and have it all dialed in. Uh, but you're absolutely right, Joy. The reason that we don't have a ton of certified varieties on the market internationally is because we didn't have the resin-producing plants until recently. And we've had the benefit of these programs for certification for uh, industrial varieties since um, the early 90s. And so there's been time for these varieties to develop, to be proven true, to you know, to everything to happen for them to get the requirements met to, to get these um, tags. And, and I would say this. Uh, we're very very close to starting to see oecd varieties um on on the resin uh, side it's kind of
0: Exciting. Very, very exciting. How about some of those unique labeling requirements? Let's move on uh, to that, if if we could, gentlemen. Which one of you would like to, to start us on labeling requirements? Just in general, some things that the listeners would, and farmers in particular, would find interesting or helpful in their search?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, just some of the things that you should be seeing on standard labels, right. Um, I, I highlighted some of those earlier, but, you know, clearly you should be seeing the name of the company that it's coming from things like the address and phone number and those sound obvious um, except that the way seeds have been sold for the last three to four years, you've got folks with duffel bags and <laughs> transactions happening in the feed lot and, you know, uh, dioecious, monaceous, uh, people are buying seeds that they think are feminized, resin producing, and they're actually getting a grain or fiber crop. Um, so just having very specific numbers that are measured by a you know, third party, <laughs> often a lab, uh, where you send in uh, a certain amount of seeds. You know, this is all learning for me in the last few years to get germ rates, right, and see what the standard germination is, or to find out the purity of that lot of seeds. And, and because seeds get produced in pretty large batches, sometimes uh, one batch may be different than the next batch. So knowing what lot you're buying and the purity of that lot is going to have a significant impact on the success of those seeds when they go in the ground or go in the trays. Um, so purity, inert matter, we talked about germ rates. Uh, these are some of the things that are standard, uh, the lot number, the date it was tested, Yeah, and a lot of farmers aren't seeing those labels uh, today, uh, unfortunately, on a consistent basis. So the more we can inform folks about what they should be seeing or be asking for, the more compliance we can get and hopefully better outcomes.
0: How can how could a farmer and I also wanted to quickly mention for our non farmers in in, who are listening today that when we say germ rates, that is a shorthand for germination, not an actual germ um, germination is what is what we're talking about with germ rates there. How can, and I, I think I, I'm unfortunately, in most cases, when it comes to extract varieties, know the answer to this question, but so that we can sort of educate folks here, uh, how can a farmer check on the purity or source of their seed? They're given a document by a person. Um, how? How could they possibly go over that person to confirm the document, the information on the document that they're being presented with? Is there sometimes something that they can do, always something that they can do? What would you advise?
2: Well, I love that question. And Christian and I will have exactly the same answer for you. And this frustrates, I think, a lot of providers. And that's that the, the, the laboratory will be on the seed label. So you call the the laboratory it has a testing number on it you call that testing number and those things should all you know match so in our case it's oregon state university aosa lab and all the purity and germination is done there and i encourage i mean it's a point of pride for us so i encourage anyone that's working with us the first time don't take my word for it it's the same with the university trials that we're doing to back the the analytics you know look at the objective data so please call and the same goes for the coas which aren't on the darn seed label and hopefully someday we get there with uh with resin producing with extract producing plants but um for now definitely verify validate check it all out
0: it's all part of doing the due diligence. And, you know, we, it's so important. The farmers are our heroes here. Without mm-hmm. those seeds growing into the going into the ground and being successfully harvested and then transported to a processor, we don't have an hemp industry, not in extract, not in grain, not in fiber, those trillion dollar industries that will, of course, have such an effect uh, on planetary healing and on creating superior products in all of these industrial markets, whether paper, textile fuel, building materials, biocomposites. So they're really our heroes and our heroines here. And and uh, we often saw in the last few years these, these unsuccessful harvests which could be traced right back to the magic beans that fraudulent uh, or unscrupulous seed sellers were getting out there and, and telling these poor farmers, you know, this is a 98% germination rate. These are all 99% feminized seeds. Uh, you're going to get 17%, you know, cannabidiol, CBD out of this crop. And then come to find out we, there were nightmares. And I, I realize this is an extreme nightmare, but, you know, one field that had 17 phenotypes, not at all uh, anything uniform, and uh, and pulling males. And of course, when we talk about pulling males, uh, audience, we're talking about pulling male plants, which pollinate the female or the feminized plants. And it's laborious to pull those uh, those plants. So a farmer has their labor budget set up a good farmers a year or two before they move into that endeavor. And so when all of the sudden you're there is this incredibly labor intensive tasks like like weeding out male hemp plants from your feminized hemp field, that's extra labor. I mean, that that right there. Uh, can ruin your harvest and and take away any uh, profit that you were thinking about getting. So it's just, it's so important to buy your seeds from scrupulous seed sellers of integrity with tremendous knowledge and and real skin in the game um, of these emerging hemp industries, like Jeremy and Christian, essentially. Tell us about what can be purchased, and then we'll get some more into lessons, but so we don't um, really miss the mark here, is where can we get this stuff please tell us guys a little bit about how folks can purchase seeds through you
1: so the the reality is every farmer or other seeking genetics for their projects they they, due diligence is exactly right and getting engaged so having conversations uh with my team having conversations with jeremy's folks One of the things I like to use is really breeders direct, getting to talk to the breeders, getting to talk to the propagators, because there's so many brokers and middlemen and they serve a very specific purpose. And many of them are ethical and doing a good job to represent what they have. But if you don't talk to the source, you're going to miss something or you're not going to get the full picture. And not every variety is meant for every (laughs) microclimate and not every variety is going to perform in every type of soil and every uh, nutrient mix. So I think working with breeders like Jeremy and others who are focused on delivering high quality genetics to the market is a first step. Uh, Clearly doing due diligence, talking to other farmers, talking to some of the folks at the crop improvement agencies, getting engaged in your local department of ag and finding out what they know and what they don't know and when they learned it and how did they learn it. It's really a process.
2: Yeah. And just what Captain, what Christian says, this is why we work together is because he believes in this philosophy, as do I, that while the industry is developing and it's nascent and we're, you know, it's a little bit volatile and we do have some of these bad actors, you know, can you blame them? There's a lot of money in the space, right? (laughs) (laughs) So, but while we have that, I think it's really important for you to be able to contact the breeder or connect with the breeder. And so that's one of the practices that I think is you know great about Christian. You know he's out there trying to connect farmers. But one of the things about him is that he won't you know he won't let a farmer purchase seed without talking to the breeder of the seed wherever possible. So um, I stand behind that as well. And you know I flog myself a little bit and I get a little tired this time of year because I put myself out there. But I've said it on you know I've, i think I probably said it here and I've said it you know a no- number of other places that while the industry is building, you know while it's developing. This is what we need to do. The people who understand the plant and understand their plants in particular need to communicate with the farmer. I mean, eventually we get to filial seven and eleven and we have plants that are you know, not speaking in the science term, but plants that are completely true to type, like a like a corn plant. But for right now, we're not there. And you know, unfortunately there are just a lot of space. So talking to the breeder is a is a really good way to to avoid that. And also, you know, lastly, talking to your state department of ag and your resources in your community because more and more four years ago they didn't have the answers but now they're they're hearing it and they're tired of failure i mean we have high rates of failure i think 22 percent in michigan last year and so you talk to mdard these guys are you know adamant about trying to connect their farmers with good breeders so that's another good resource they were quiet they're government officials they didn't want to get involved in sort of the you know the the liability of you know pushing people into a private business but now more and more they recognize that it's it's critical for them to do so so don't hesitate to call them
1: i think another piece is the engagement so thanks to uh morris and team noco sevens around the corner so you got to go talk to people. And uh, if you're comfortable uh, getting into uh, the shows and talking to the folks at the booth, you're going to hear, you know, a lot of sales and marketing, but then you got to do your due diligence on it. Right. And I think uh, the point about the, the various uh, crop improvement agencies or associations, the, the various departments of ag is they're all learning too. You know, sometimes it's really the farmer educating the department or the, the ag commissioner. Um, And they can't be experts on everything. I mean, when you look at the amount of seeds and genetics that IOSCA and related uh, associations are managing, you know, whether it's sunflower seeds or peanut seeds (laughs) or corn seeds, there's a lot there. And a lot of those varieties have been around for 100 years. Right. And it's a very different conversation where we are with hemp today and where we're headed is towards standardization. Uh, It's it's coming. We know it's around the corner, but we're not there yet. And so we need to continue to do due diligence, continue to work uh, together as as an industry and support each other with this education. Another great resource, and this is probably an area of, of, I imagine, both pride and significant differentiation for someone like Jeremy. And uh, there's others out there for sure that have taken the time and energy to engage and support uh, field trials and variety trials at various uh, universities. And I got to tell you, uh, for the first time in my life, I spent an hour and a half or two hours reading a variety trial on a recent road trip. And it was one of the most densely packed uh, technical documents I've read in quite a long time. And I got a serious education reading that document. And if I was who's, about to... Whose variety <laughs> trial was that? <laughs> yeah, I think that was the University <laughs> of Vermont
2: Extension Program. Let you say? I think it's on my desktop. Our variety trial. We were in that. I'm bragging.
1: Yeah, you, you were in there for sure. And... You know, just (laughs) if I was about to spend ten thousand or a hundred thousand dollars on genetics, I might want to read a few of those. Yes. Right. When you think about the the serious investment that someone's making, relying on a fancy website or somebody's, you know, Instagram account for decision making may not be where you want to stop. That's all I'm saying.
0: Indeed, indeed. And you know what? I I realize there's an important piece here um, when we talk about all of the time that, that it takes, um, not just for variety trials, but but again for for breeding. And I know people and generations who have, you know, worked decades uh to create unique, distinct, and stable hemp varieties in the grain and, and fiber market. And and of course, the the situation that we're dealing with here in the United States is somewhat unique to the United States in that different European countries and Canada of course have been regulating the crop for 20 plus years longer than we have now not for extract varieties that we're all we're sharing all of that sort of uh, chaos and confusion globally um, but uh, but certainly in terms of certified pedigreed uh, seeds in the grain and fiber markets of hemp those have been um, going on and and uh, for for years folks have been able to Uh, breed, get them certified. They're out in the market now. And then, of course, we have this interesting uh, sort of philosophical debate of free the seed, man, you know, free seeds, seeds, seeds belong to all of us. And, and, and quoting of the Bible and every other thing that you can imagine around this, you know, seeds belong to all of us, and, and they should be free conversation. And in, and we'll get to utopia in, maybe hundreds of years from now, maybe 20 years. I don't know. Right now, however, um, we have a system in place uh, throughout the planet and certainly here in the United States and material transfer agreements and intellectual property rights uh, absolutely play a part in this stream of commerce that is agricultural seed sold for agricultural purposes. Um, And and so there are generally material transfer agreements when seeds uh, exchange hands with limitations uh, so as to preserve the intellectual property rights of the breeder or whoever it is that has taken a lawful ownership um, of those genetics. I'm interested to hear uh, what you gentlemen would have to say about intellectual property rights and, and things to be aware of and respectful of in general.
1: Excellent. I'm, I'm happy to take a shot, Jeremy. And then, you know, I, and you know, I, my perspective on this is, is really that of a, of a layperson, right? I haven't spent uh, the sweat and tears and blood and the dirt under the nails and the hours in the greenhouses to, to breed uh, these plants, but I know quite a few folks that have. And I think what you're uh, bringing up is, is critical to understand the value uh, of the time and energy invested in these breeding programs, uh, you know, thousands of hours and literally millions of dollars being spent to get to these varieties that those breeders want to be rewarded for. Um, You know, there's been discussions and and conversations around the uh, open cannabis project and some things that happened there that weren't too great for some folks that were trying to contribute to this body of work and uh, intellectual property rights, uh, plant varietal protection. You know, there's a whole wave coming around cannabis and industrialized hemp and intellectual property. And the ability to actually monetize a variety beyond selling a clone or a seed or a start, right? So the whole idea of licensing. And we're just starting to see this really develop, uh, once again, emerging markets, emerging intellectual property rights, uh, emerging royalty uh, streams. But there's definitely folks uh, like Dale Hunt and the the folks at Breeders Best and uh, a few other folks in the industry that are trying to help protect the rights of breeders make sure they get compensated for all their hard work, time, and energy, and give them a path to move forward uh, for economic gain that's fair and equitable. And, and that's what I think we all hope for. Jeremy, you, you can speak to it too.
2: Sure. And I mean, I can speak to another side of it because what you, what you are talking about is critical and that's um, the standpoint of, of allowing these people who spent the time and energy to create these varieties. Like you said, Joy. some of them, these people have been working for, you know, 15, 20 plus years to create these varieties. And, you know, the beautiful thing is I think most of that's done altruistically. I don't think they do it to capitalize or get a mailbox check. But do they deserve one? Absolutely. You know, if, if this is going to be turned into revenue, why shouldn't those people who did that reading, you know, end up with a piece of that? And I'm not speaking really from my side. I'm really speaking for the person that, you know, doesn't have the ability to really do all the work to get it out there, commercialize it, do all that lifting you know compared to a giant company that can come up with 20 or 30 patents because they can't do that work do they not deserve a piece of something that they created and especially with the cannabis and hemp I mean this becomes personal because of the the war of genocide that took place against this plant for so long and these people to me in many cases these are warriors these are warriors and preservationists against genocide so there's a passion there but you know let me step outside of that passion for a moment and Talk about it from another side of, you know, altruistically, like not doing it from a point of of monetizing something. And so, yes, I have millions of dollars (laughs) into creating these varieties that we've created and commercialized. Um, You know, that wasn't the reason that we did it, though, was so that we could see the millions of dollars come back. Right. Um, And 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 so I want to be clear with you. when I say the reason that we did it, the reason we went for IP protection, the reason that we put material transfers out. You know, the reason that we do that is so that we can more free, freely open the plant to other people. And I want to explain that to you, that we have a scenario where your business is as large as it is and has as much profitability as it is. Inevitably, you're going to attract <clears throat> players that may not operate as fairly as others, let's just say. And so the best way for anybody at any level to protect the work that they have is because it gives you an equal playing field is to create some IP protection. And so rather from a position of, hey, listen, we're putting material transfers out and we're putting patents that we can own this and monetize it, it's the opposite of me, Joy. And I would really like people to understand that. The reason that we do this is so that we can freely open the germplasm for development. We're in a position right now where this plant needs to be discovered. It, I mean, needs to be researched. We have so much discovery to make. For you and I, Joy, and I'm not excluding you Christian because your passion is equal to or greater than anyone in this space, but for you and I, Joy, who have been doing this for so long, this is an incredible moment in history and, and we would really like to see it um, roll out appropriately and, and in order to do that, we have to, in, in my humble opinion, create some sort of a pathway for IP protection in order to just be able to freely give that out. Otherwise, somebody, if it's open source is going to grab a hold of it and capitalize and monetize on you know so really for me it is the best pathway and it took me a long time to get comfortable with that joy because coming from a place of equity being working with this plant this plant teaches you that you know you create balance by just freely giving and then the universe provides freely back to you right um so it takes a minute to actually decide that wait i have Tell me I have to slow that down and, and work on some protection in order to be able to freely give that. But that's what I want people to understand is I think most of the people in the hemp and cannabis space that are patenting or looking at IP protection, they're little guys in a big game. And they're just trying to be able to freely offer that, at least in our case, 100%. And if you look behind the curtain on us, you're going to see a, a massive amount of research programs going on ac- ar- around the world with shared data agreements just to move this all forward. I mean, and Christian knows that more than most people, but we're working you know, literally with some of the top research institutions around the planet to move this plant forward. Just got results back on 74 cannabinoids alone for our varieties. This is how we learn. And guess what? We can't learn if we can't open up this germplasm freely. And we can't open it up freely because it's worth money unless we protect it right so
0: it's it's really it, it's just the, the reality of of responsible stewardship uh self-care what would happen if we lost uh the ability for for Jeremy and Christian uh, to move forward with this work epic pioneer warrior hero educators liberators of the plant that you are uh because you didn't protect and then somebody else obviously is going to come in and and grab those genetics and one piece before we move on to um, I want to make sure we hit seed production and seed sales registration, but one more piece on this intellectual property rights, and it's one that we didn't really get to just for the listeners who were sort of on the 101 lesson here, and that is um, your basic rule is you can't replant the seed guys you've got to go back for a number of reasons if you're planting certified seed you must go back to the actual certified seed each year but also you don't own those seeds to replant that were produced from your certified seeds that you purchased with a material transfer agreement could you elaborate on what i just said gentlemen
1: so, yeah, so the, the material transfer agreement, or MTA, is standard language in almost every seed purchase agreement I've been involved in. It specifies what the buyer of those seeds can do with those seeds, and it also limits or restricts what they can do. Um, I was reviewing several of them today, uh, talking with somebody that had not yet crafted an MTA for their genetics, and they were interested to learn that they could actually have rights to go audit you know, a farm or a project. Um, in order to make sure that the seeds are being used properly. Um, sometimes seeds are produced accidentally or there's something that happens uh, on the farm where seeds are generated from a crop. Clearly those could be used and the terms of the MTA will tell you if you have the rights to reuse those. Sometimes seed producers have buyback programs and they'll actually buy those seeds back from the farmer to have a, you know a kind of a, a fair exchange around that. So, Uh, read your seed purchase agreements if you need advice from a professional uh, take a look closely at what you're agreeing to and and uh, I guess the bottom line is fair exchange
0: amen amen to that that what a great way to to close that subject brother (laughs) let's get into seed production and seed sales registration which one of you gentlemen would like to start us off with that one
1: uh, I'll let uh, Jeremy go ahead and, and run with seed production. I'll, I'll just say with seed sales registration, it was a, a steep learning curve for myself and some of the folks who were involved in compliance with uh, a number of the seed producers I worked with, where they needed to register to be a seed producer <laughs> and what jurisdictions required it. And, you know, every state's a little different. So what's happened in Arizona may not be the same thing that's happened in North Carolina. And once you have your seed sales registration, what does that give you the right to do? So once again, uh, many compliance and regulatory requirements and frameworks are out there pre-existing. Many are being adopted and adapted to hemp. And, you know, if you're in the seed game, you need to know your regs and you need to be in compliance in order to play by the rules and and have a level playing field for that matter. Maybe you want to speak to some of that and what you had to go through, Jeremy.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'll just I'll just cap that on the certification side that I think a lot of people don't understand that, you know, you have to have a seed sellers registration in pretty much every state that you want to sell seed in and i, I think you know i'm i i do not know how many seed providers out there actually hold, i think we hold including our our state licenses for production and growing we hold 48 different licenses that all need to be renewed annually so that we can sell seed in the united states alone so i think that's an important one when we talk about certification is making sure that these you know guys all understand that not only do they have a responsibility to be registered in the state that they're producing the seed in, but they have a responsibility to be registered in the state that they're. And again, following all of these protocols, these are all set in place in standard agriculture for protections. You know, I mean, we we haven't even touched on the real protection as to, as far as like why these seed levels were <clears throat> created and why they have inert matter, foreign matter, all that. Well, we, you know, we don't want Oregon to be spread in verticillium wilt to, you know, Minnesota, right, so seed-borne pathogens, illnesses, we don't want, you know, napweed, spotted napweed, getting from X place to X place, right, so this is why these things are in place, you know, um, so I, I'm, I'm hopeful that someday we get, we get to the point where that really starts to, to be cemented in everyone's mind, but Moving on to seed production. So, again, licensure and make sure that you got your your guys got a license in your state. If he's a seed producer in Oregon and you're in Florida, he better have a seed producer's license in Oregon and he better have a seed seller's license in Florida. But seed production, you know, high level view. And then, you know, please, guys, if there's more, because you you both know me well enough to know this is my wheelhouse. You know, but I guess what I'd say is from a farmer standpoint, or from even the guy who's looking to get into seed production, you know, with hemp and cannabis in particular, if you're not extremely proficient at growing the plant. If you haven't gotten to a place where growing the plant is non-issue for you, where time after time you know, your SOPs deliver you perfect, flawless plants at the end and mature plants at the end of the cycle, then you have no business getting into seed because it's a stepping stone. And once you can you can proficiently produce the plant, then you can promise a seed to a farmer that's going to deliver on what they need. And and I really mean that. That the, Essentially, what happens with this plant is you have a, a plant that in the spring, it comes to life. In the fall, it dies in its natural life cycle. So the, the, the process of the plant maturing is also the process of the plant dying and senescing, right? And so now you have a situation where, and I don't think a lot of people understand this, but... To to produce a mature cannabis flower, generally speaking, if we were to, you know, take that into indoor terms, where you go from an 18, 12, you know, straight out, you have an eight-week flowering cycle. So if you take that eight week flowering cycle for producing a a mature <coughs> cannabis flower, extend that another four weeks to produce a seed. So now you have a twelve week flowering cycle to produce a mature seed. When you have a plant that's already fighting and senescing and wanting to die at eight weeks, right? You get what I'm saying. In order to produce mature seed, you better know what you're doing with the plant. So, therein, I, you know, I, I think that the wisdom there is it makes a good hemp seed producer very rare, in that you have to have proficiently grown the plant for a very long time before you can allow her to become pregnant and take her to full fruition without losing her so that's the bottom line so if you got a guy who says well i've been in agriculture for 25 years and i was a seed producer doing x y and z i did wheat and soy and corn doesn't translate it doesn't play just because of the production cycle right so there would be my my high level on seed and i'm happy to dive in to any other facet that you guys want to hear about i
1: i, I think another Great point that you could probably touch on, uh, Jeremy, and, and this is the one that's critical to, you know, obviously cannabinoid uh, farming, mm-hmm. <laughs> if we can call it that, and people focus on the, on the resin and extraction, it, and Joy brought it up at, from another dimension looking at, uh, you know, rogues and males is feminization, and that there's specific methodologies and arguably even trade secrets around the feminization process, because not all feminized seed is created equal is what I've seen out in the field. No, no.
2: No, and hmm, how do I touch on that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, no, you, have just,
1: to, you don't have to talk I, about your process. I, I'm completely <laughs> kidding. I'm completely kidding. Um,
2: no, and none of the, None of this is really that proprietary. The only, I think, the only reason that we would not want some people to have the technology is that they'll just abuse it, and they won't treat the plant correctly with it, and they'll not do it at a scale or with a level of of proficiency that needs <laughs> you know that needs to be done with. So, but other than that, you know, really. We, you know, we apply a stressing agent to the plant to in- encourage it to create XX pollen basically as the result. And so it's important that people know that when you talk about these manipulations, I, I think a lot of people get the misconception that we're like manipulating the, the plant that has the seed to make the seed. No, the, the stressors never touch the the plant that makes the seed. It's just we've we've manipulated the plant to make the pollen only become male pollen. And what I would say that's really important is we have a plant that has hermaphroditic potential. And in my experience, generally, if you can completely feminize, um, if you can completely masculinize, if you can completely reverse a plant so that it will produce XX pollen, then you don't have any um, XY pollen in there. The XY pollen comes from the hermaphroditic potential. It comes from the brack pollen and other places in the plant. So if you have bad lines that you're breeding with that's where you really impact your feminization rate and you know i would say to you unfortunately you know half or better of the lines out there are bad lines that have her magnetic potential so knowing the lineage is really the way to help reduce the the feminization and i mean really have to tell you guys fem inside of the, the the circles you know of people who are doing the breeding you either hit it or you don't the problem with FEM comes from bad lines, hermaphroditic potential, and bad genetics to start with. So it's no stability work. And there, therein lies why it takes 7 to 10 or 14 years, like you say, Joy, to do this, is you're stabilizing the plant and you're you know, limiting the hermaphroditic potential over time. And I would go as far as to say, you know, the plant learns from you and you learn from it. And so you have to take the time to train the plants, the lines, before you ever take the time to reverse them and create seed from them to reduce the hermaphroditic potential. If you do that, then the FEM comes out great. You have 100% FEM seed. It translates out to the field to these very high FEM rates. I mean, our frequency is 1 in 5,000 on the high side, 1 in 9,000 on the low side. Wow. Yeah, we've had farmers come back and say, we found one true male in 11,700 plants. I think that's the lowest frequency that we've heard. Wow. Yeah, so if you hit it, you hit it. But it's the stability work. And anytime you're racing to commercialize something, you're cutting corners, you're going to expose yourselves to that. So, again, for a, from a farmer's standpoint, do not, do not touch seed from breeders that haven't been in the game for a while, that don't know their lines, right?
0: A hundred and ten percent. It's really the the biggest lesson of this show, um, and and I couldn't have asked for two uh, more integral educating warriors here to to help teach it. Is know who you're buying your seeds from. Those seeds have to be right when they go into the ground it is the only way to success and we want our farmers to have successful experiences our farmers are the ones chopping the wood and carrying the water for the trillion dollar industries that are emerging in this country and throughout the world Um, and it's everything it starts with well it starts with field selection and then the seed. <laughs> um, and so, and so, folks, before I, I sort of say how we will be able to um, find out how to connect with you, I want to make sure, Jeremy and Christian, is there anything that I haven't asked or and I, and I would like, I'll start with Christian, but I want to ask each of you anything I haven't asked or something really important that you want to make sure uh, you communicate uh, to our listeners today before we part?
1: Uh, I I think it's just reinforcing uh, people need to do their own homework and they need to dig a little deeper and making big decisions, you know, take, take the time to talk to the folks, get to the breeder. It's not always easy. They're busy. (laughs) They're they're, uh, running their daily operations and they can't always spend two hours on the phone with everyone that wants to know more about the seeds, but real breeders show up is what I would say.
0: Oh, real breeders show up. That's Amen. I'd Put that on a t-shirt, people, a hemp t-shirt.
2: <laughs> That's a good one, Christian.
0: And, and Jeremy, before you share your um, final thoughts on that, let me just ask you one question, an important one that I didn't ask first, and that is, when should farmers start looking and preparing for seeds for their next season? What's the timing on that, brother?
2: You know, the earlier, the better. Um, I'm going to just tell you the truth. And that's that the seed that you see being flogged on the market in June, (laughs) there's a reason it's being flogged on the market. We're a boutique, uh, you know, we're a boutique, a craft producer. We produce a set amount of acres of seed in the season. And our goal is to sell all of that seed. The earlier in the season that it's gone, the better for us. And it's not that we don't want farmers to get our seed, but I would certainly say A lot of seed on the market, but the best seed goes away by April, May.
0: And how long, generally speaking, does a hemp seed remain viable?
2: So if it's stored well, a hemp seed can remain viable for several years. Uh, Viability will be reduced, right? So if you take it on a lot percentage basis, but if you store seed well, it can be very safe for five to seven years. You know, we're we're germinating seeds for preservation work that are 30 plus years old. So you can get... viable i you know and there's a different school of thought too among a lot of farmers we have farmers that are traditional farmers that don't want this year's seed they actually want last year's seed so you know and then there's a whole set of farmers that see the opposite so you know i would just point that out that you know smart farmers know that seed viability depending on the quality of the seed it just doesn't wane doesn't dissipate
0: fascinating and storage being so so important and by the way be checking on that as part of your due diligence uh oh these these are five years old but they're great they've been stored in a you know no window 500 degree during the hot summer day room for five years but sure they're still viable and so and so jeremy for your closing brother anything that i haven't asked or something important you want to make sure the listeners or the farmers know
2: no, not at all, Joy. You do an awesome job. Are you kidding me? You did a great job of covering all the bases. And I think you say it so well that, you know, we're here to help farmers. They're, they're the backbone. Agriculture is the backbone of everything. And I think what really woke me up here, Joy, to what's going on in this particular, you know, facet of agriculture is a situation where these farmers have sometimes for generations worked to gain the input capital to put into the field every year pull a crop off and at the end of the season get the cream off the top of that input capital live off of it for the year maybe buy a new truck and then put that same input capital back into the ground next year and now we have these farmers i mean these seed producers that are going after their input capital and they're hurting farmers in a way that they can't plant next year and a lot of them will lose the farm so i think that's got me really fired up and Um, I think it's very important that we get past this moment in history and help help farmers really move move into a, a better paradigm of hemp farming.
0: Well, we're getting past it with gentlemen and gals like you on the job, I can tell you that. Jeremy Kletke, CEO and president of Davis Farms, Christian Gray, partner at Agros Ventures, and my two brothers who I just love and respect so much and can't wait to have on again, folks if you want to know how to get in touch with these gentlemen or where their websites are please go to pod connects that's p-o-d-c-o-n-x pod hit that hemp barons tab and we'll have all of those uh the websites um, and information about jeremy and christian there uh clearly uh two gentlemen who know what they're doing and are are really putting their best foot forward uh their time and their hearts and their minds making sure that we can Deliver on the promise of hemp. Gentlemen, brothers, thank you so much for being with me today.
1: Thank you so much. Good seeing you, Jeremy. Thank you, Joy. Appreciate it. Have a great day.
0: You too, guys. Thank you. Till next time. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Joyce Gerber, the creator and host of the award-winning
2: podcast, The Canna Mom Show. And we are on a mission to enhance the impact women have on this industry as business professionals, healthcare providers, policy advocates, caregivers, moms, by sharing and preserving their stories of love and kindness, wisdom, and hope. I am so grateful to have found my tribe of Canna podcasters right here on Pod. Connex, and look forward to our work of crushing the stigma around cannabis and caregivers and building this new industry together.